Welcome to episode 8 of the Pokemon Gold podcast. James Carew, co-editor of Pokemon Gold website and magazine, and you're listening to the 8th edition of the podcast accompanying the release of Ireland's only football periodical. Order Pokemon Gold magazine from pokemongold.bigcartel.com. 64 pages of Irish and world football culture combined with history, design, art and more. Each episode features content from the magazine and website in detail from the mind of the person who created it. Toggle back wherever you get your podcasts and get in touch to let us know your thoughts and comments on social media at Pogmagold. On today's episode, we're joined by another contributor to the magazine. This time we're going back to issue five, copies of which you can still pick up, to discuss a golden age of football kit design in which an Irish team rubbed shoulders literally and figuratively with giants of the game. But first, I'm joined again by my co-host, Joe Phelan, who is based in London. He's a writer, editor, and flatmate to the stars. Do you want to tell us who you live with, Joe? Yeah, I live with, um, I'm a celebrity superstar, Jordan North, who is also a massive Burnley fan, in keeping with this podcast. And his happy place was Turf Moor throughout the series, wasn't it? Yeah, his happy place is Turf Moor, but... I, I don't know, he just seems to be getting a lot of jokes about that, even now, that not many people seem to find Turf Moor to be a happy place, even the Burnley side yeah. at the minute. So before we introduce our guest and to tee up today's subject, I want to ask you, Joe, what is the favourite football shirt that you own? Um, okay, well, this, this chat is going to be around retro kits, and I'll, I'll have to admit that I'm a Tottenham fan and I grew up just outside Sunderland, so I didn't really have the opportunity to own many Tottenham kits when I was there. This was the, the pre-internet day, so it wasn't easy to, to order them. You had to put in a bit of effort, and my parents were clearly not willing to put in that effort. Um, so, I, so I ended up wearing like, random teams that you'd find on sale in TK Maxx. So I, I had a Bordeaux kit, I had a Marseille kit, I had a Cameroon kit. Um, no affinity with any of those teams, but I wore the shirt. I, then I went through a bit of a lull of not buying any, and then last year I bought... Um, the St Albans away shirt and that that sounds niche but it's for a very specific reason so they are sponsored by one of my favorite bands who is Enter Shikari and they grew up in St Albans and they decided to sponsor the team um, because they were struggling to make ends meet due to various losses in revenue stream thanks to Covid so this shirt sponsorship basically kept the club afloat and I was I was more than happy to to put some money into the into a team that I've never thought of before and never seen and will never see in my life. But I'll, I'll keep them afloat if it, if it makes my favourite band happy. Yeah. Um, I think this will probably come up when we speak to our guests, but don't you wish you held on to all those old kits? Not least because 
they're cult favourites now. Also, they're probably worth a bit of money. When I was younger, my dad was a French teacher and we would go to France every summer. But I had an old long sleeve nonce shirt when I was in primary school. And I'd wear that on the yard and those lunchtime football matches. And everyone would come up and say, what shirt is that? Is that Norwich? And you just felt like king of the schoolyard when you said, no, it's, a, it's this really cool French club. And so I'm really looking forward to speaking to our guest today, who's Phil Delves, a writer on all things football kits, host of a YouTube channel discussing the same, head of content at the Football Shirt Collective, and author of our article, Jersey Boys, Cork City FC and Kit Design Heaven in the League of Ireland. Welcome to the Pogue Gold podcast, Phil. Hey guys, thank you so much for having me. It's a real, uh, real pleasure and uh, even the conversation already has already got got my mind whirling so it's great to talk talk about kits with you well let's jump straight in phil i'll ask you the same question i asked Mm -hmm. joe um probably difficult for you but do you have a favorite kit yeah i am i think unlike some people who have always loved one particular shirt i would say i'm I'm a bit more of a kind of a a mercenary i don't know if that's the word but i've I've flitted between different favorites and I'm, i'm very much someone who enjoys the kind of full breadth i guess of um of the shirt world, but yeah, in terms of the ones that I own, um, well, one one that I picked up last year, which I really, uh, really loved, and I was really happy to get, uh, was a Palmer shirt. And Palmer, I'm sure everyone who's listening will will have images of that great team they had in the '90s. Uh, and the particular shirt was actually a, a match worn shirt, and I don't own many match worn shirts, but it was a, a Hidetoshi Nakata match worn long sleeve. Uh, the year, I think it's 2002 or three. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, a lovely kind of long sleeve Serie A shirt and it's that blue and yellow of Palmer, which is so, so wonderful. So that that's a personal favourite at the moment. Yeah. And so on each episode, we like to ask our guests what got them interested in football in the first place. And then with yourself, not only what got you into the sport, where did this obsession with collecting shirts come from? Yeah, so uh, starting with football, my... My dad's uh, from New Zealand, so growing up it was all about rugby. So actually, you know, as a kid, uh, there'd always be the All Blacks on the telly, and and that was kind of my first exposure to sport. And as such, as a consequence of that as well, we didn't really have a lot of, um, well, football wasn't really a a big part of of the house growing up. Um, And I I grew up in Essex near Southend, so Southend United were the closest sort of team, and I did go to a few games then, but... It wasn't really until kind of midway through primary school, so I would have been about nine or ten at this point, uh, I kind of thought, well, actually, I should probably pick a Premier League team to support, you know, at the time. Um, I was left out of conversations, otherwise, you know, people would be talking about it and I didn't have a team. And in a kind of roundabout way, I chose to support Liverpool. And it was kind of... Um, so that I think at this point, they'd just won sort of the poor man's treble. They'd won the, the League Cup, the UEFA Cup. And the FA Cup, so it was in 2001, it was around then. I think from that point on, when I started supporting them, I then kind of grew into just picking up different um, results from other leagues. And I was always fascinated with, with leagues like Serie A and the Bundesliga. And I think just little bits here and there, I found myself kind of enjoying seeing highlights from those games. And you see the shirts. And I mean, I like a lot of people who might have grown up in the 90s with... Um, you know, Italian football on TV. <clears throat> I think for me it was 
it was that kind of thing where you'd see these kits and these players and these teams and there was such a romance to so much of it and it just grew from there and um in terms of the shirts i guess you know building on from that uh after after university when i graduated and i found myself having a bit of disposable income i was just amazed at what you could find on ebay and it kind of started so this was only not long ago sort of 2016 17 and it was just great, you know, finding, again, these old shirts from when I was really enjoying football in the noughties for, you know, £10, £20. And then using Twitter as a platform to talk about them. Uh, yeah, it ended up basically that I was in the position to get a job writing about shirts and it all went from there. So, as I say, the kits were very much a part of that love early on. I, th- I think um, through the 90s and the early 2000s, I-, I-, I completely understand where you're coming from with the, like, this level of-, of romance because the European leagues just seemed so exotic then. It, it, like, the world felt a lot bigger. Like, if you saw a team from Italy, you go, wow, I wonder what their life is like. It's yeah. pretty mad over there. And then si- since, since the internet's come about and um, like cheap, cheap travel over there and stuff, it, just, it doesn't seem quite so special. But I completely understand. Like, when watching... Um, Juventus and Lazio and Roma back in the mid nineties. It just seemed yeah. like a completely different universe. Absolutely, and I think it's so much. So much of their kind of uh, identity is tied into the kits and the colours. And you know, you think of a team like Fiorentina. That purple is just it, it. It gives off some sort of vibe or some sort of story, even if you don't know anything about the team. You think, oh wow, what's that? What's that purple team there? You know, it's like it's that immediate visual hook which i think is so cool um and it still works today growing up i remember like buying the shirt of your favorite team was difficult Mm. it was expensive Mm. shirts are expensive now but do you think you spoke about social media and lots of people Mm. who follow us are huge kit aficionados Mm. would almost buy a a shirt a week Mm -hmm. do you think there's like a renaissance in shirt collecting now as an advent of the internet yeah i think one big thing which which i saw last year obviously with covid and everything there was there was a significant surge i think there was already a growth before then and i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't have the job i'm doing now if it wasn't for people being interested in kits but i think yeah absolutely from i I would say from last year as as that first lockdown came suddenly loads of people started popping up on, on social media and saying oh you know I've been interested in kits and I just thought I'd join social media and with people having more time and stuff like that. I think you're right. There was, there was something of a renaissance and very much kind of all the tools are there now for someone to kind of dabble in the hobby, even if it is just uh, talking about shirts, even if it's not buying the shirts. I think it's, it's great that now one of the positives of, of social media being able to you know, talk about this relatively niche hobby. It is still quite niche, that kind of collecting bubble, but it's great that you can, uh, you know, not only chat with someone, but there's all these all sorts of great kind of knock-on things where you have people, uh, you know, just sharing stories and just sharing pictures of the kits. And so, yeah, I think definitely that there's a, a wave of enthusiasm. Um, yeah, and it's a really fun time to, to be into it. Yeah, can I just ask a very specific question about your um, kit collecting hobby? Yeah. So, where do you display them? 
because all these kits are so unique and interesting. Like, yeah. how do you, are you do you just buy them and then just put them in a cupboard, or do you stick them on your wall, or yeah. have you made a duvet out of them? <laughs> oh, mate. If if I did that, I think lots of my followers would disown me. <laughs> Rep- repurpose them. Um, no, it's a good question though because I I actually don't really display them regularly. I mean, I think in my head, long term, I would definitely. Uh, see myself having some sort of display I, th- I think you know I, I well I put them in a lot of them in kind of plastic wallets and then inside a box so I, I try to, to take care of them but um, I mean basically one of the reasons I, st- I started my YouTube channel was just as another kind of platform to show to show the kits really but it is basically just uh, yes yeah, stored away which is uh, it's a, sh- a shame in some ways but I think um, I, I wouldn't have enough wall space to put them all up I think at the moment I've been really looking forward to this discussion, Phil. Uh, I turned 40 this year. So first, I think because I'm stuck at home, what are we going on a year now? I'm really, nostalgia is a big part of my life at the minute. So (laughs) I'm all about this, which is why your article has the perfect opening. Because you talk about a golden era of football shirts was the end of the 20th century. And you write images of Maradona and Baggio in their prime are so prevalent that even millennials have grown to harbour a love for these glory days when shorts were short and YouTube highlight compilations were a figment of the imagination. Take us back to the 80s, Phil. Yeah, so it's really funny because I think for someone like me who... So I was born in the 90s, so I kind of missed um, seeing all these legendary players in their prime and, and certainly live. So I grew up... I mean, my first... First World Cup I kind of properly watched was two thousand two, so I kind of it's it's really funny because um, even though I I didn't see the nineties kind of live, if you like, there was so much, so many stories and so many images from that um, that were still being told and and celebrated uh, from myself growing up. So yeah, it's it's funny how a decade which I never really saw the eighties and and even the nineties. Um, I still feel some sort of draw towards and I still feel like I know a lot of these players because their stories and their their careers um, would touch so many people's lives. And I guess Maradona is probably the best example. You know, seeing everything last year. And, um, and even for myself, actually, I'd actually went to Naples a couple of years ago and obviously going there it was like kind of a pilgrimage or, you know, seeing the people there and the, the Neapolitans there. Um, yeah, it was it was like nothing I've ever seen. So I, I, it's funny. I kind of can't speak as an authority on on that time, but at the same time, what's what I could say is that we are still seeing the ripple effects of that that time, and you can see that in the kits, of course. Um, and you know, even I mean, to take a recent example, something like the kits that we saw at the twenty eighteen World Cup, uh, Adidas especially, really playing off some of those old themes. You could cynics would say, oh, they're just trying to cash in on on the nostalgia. But I do think so much of what was being done at that time actually was objectively good and has actually uh, kind of shown up a lot of the more modern approaches. And now brands are scrambling to try and think, hang on a minute, um, people people actually like these shirts. People actually enjoyed the flamboyancy and the slight kind of. Um, yeah, the, the daring nature of a lot of these shirts from the 80s and 90s. So I think there's a, there's a very real reason brands are doing that or trying to capture that in a bottle again. 
I was just going to say that the fact that you didn't live through the 80s and you, you're just saying the, the first World Cup you remember is 2002, you probably weren't hampered that much by having not lived through the era because the exposure was so limited to those leagues anyway. I, I was born in, in 88 so, and I didn't really start following football until the late 90s. But I think it almost have just as much capacity to learn about the Italian leagues and the German leagues um, of, of that era now because we're getting clips now and we're getting um, the ability to read articles now that wouldn't have even been available to people in the 90s and the 2000s anyway. So it, it's, it's, pro- it's probably a, a, a good way to to expose yourself to this is, is via the kits. No, that's really, that's that's good actually. That's, that's a really good point because I think, um, yeah, I probably take it for granted actually kind of, you know, as I say, when I was growing up, I could actually access highlights or see highlights for, for most leagues and everything. But yeah, that's a, that's a really good shout. I, I think what, I did live through it. <laughs> so, I, well, I was a young boy, but... Yeah, like, yeah. let's jump in let's just jump in and talk about some of these kids i yeah, think like on. you in in the 2000s in maybe the 2010s it felt like a lot of the kits were every country was the same like someone yeah. like adidas would bring out a template and yeah. every world cup kit was the same mm-hmm. but in in those days individual countries like the netherlands mm-hmm. i mean the netherlands kit it was especially uh, prevalent for us in ireland because we played them at euro 88 our very yeah. first our very first tournament uh, where we beat England. I always have to <laughs> put that in. But we played the Dutch. So you had this kind of clash of the green and the orange. And every Dutch fan, as they still do, wore this shirt. The Van Basten volley. You start the piece with, uh, you speak about heritage. That heritage is more than results or trophies or, or a youth system. It's a combination of all those things. But shirts and kits can be a, a heritage as well. And that tournament in particular was like the, the zenith mm. of beautiful kits. Absolutely. And I think it was cool actually when I, when I was writing the piece, kind of doing my research and going back and looking at what we saw in the 80s, you could kind of see a gradual opening up, um, you know, of, almost of Pandora's box, if you like. Just more and more... Uh, I guess experimentation and development from from brands like Adidas almost from each major tournament in the 80s so if you go uh, if you include the World Cup in 86 and then the Euros before that something like that Holland shirt was kind of really really pioneering it was something we'd not seen before and it was building on this idea that actually kits could um, be really creative and they could have these graphics and these patterns and 88 was certainly one of the kind of key touch points in that in, in, in sort of opening up as I say that that world of, of opportunity and it was great because any kit and any great kit always is kind of elevated by a great team and I think you know that was what was again even more special about that Holland team you know not only did they have one of the best kits but they actually had the best team what I like as well looking back on that the Germany show almost helped that and I think you know any good, um, it's like any good athlete, isn't it? Needs a, a rival to spur them on. It was almost like that, I think. But yeah, I mean, that 88 is probably probably the best it will ever be, I think, for kids. The other iconic kit, as you mentioned, was West Germany. But what you also put in the article, which doesn't happen anymore, is that they wore it in 88 and they kept it for 1990 yes. and then won the World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> so, World Cup. Yeah. so this yeah. shirt was there for more than one year basically <laughs> yeah more than one game <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah just i sort of took for granted you know that you'd have a shirt for more than one year and now 
you know, many teams are releasing fourth kits. There's even, you know, fifth kits. I mean, it's kind of, it's basically kit saturation at this point. You know, I've said that phrase a few times, like recently that we've gone, we've gone way past the point that we were at even just five years ago. Yeah. And, and there's a lot, you know, that's, that's bad about that. I think a lot of it is, can be managed or handled well, but that's probably a subject I wouldn't want to bore people with thinking about that too much. But yeah, I think you're absolutely, absolutely right to point that out. And it's a good thing, obviously, that having them won the World Cup in 1990, we got to see, again, a great kit on a great team. Another thing that is slightly removed from what we were just discussing there, but something else that you picked up on the article was um, looking at not necessarily the, the the clubs and the teams, but the brands behind it. So I know people always think of Adidas and Nike, uh, Puma, to, to a lesser extent Under Armour now, but... I, I, when you picked up on uh, Admiral and how Admiral were basically the company that, that instigated the replica football kit, by, they, they started with, with Leeds and then they eventually became like the England uh, kit maker. And they, they, they were like, the biggest name in the early 80s and uh, the late 70s. And they're kind of forgotten now. So I think by brands like Admiral and Hummel, they were sort of like, victims of their own success because the, the idea of selling replica kits became so popular so fast and they just weren't really ready for that level of expansion and growth. And then the huge brands like Nike and Adidas just jumped in and, and took over the market. So it, it's interesting to think that in the 70s and the 80s, people hadn't even really considered the idea of wearing replica kits. Like, it wasn't even a thing. And now 40 years later, the industry's worth like, like a quarter of a billion or something. I think I was reading earlier, it's worth a quarter of a billion now. And it's just it's just crazy how quickly that, that market is has grown and blossomed and it, it seems so obvious as well yeah i know and it's it's yeah it's really funny like if you think about those early days with admiral like you say um kits the kits were kind of seen as basically just for kids or there was kind of a, a real kind of um almost resistance really to, to the idea of, of selling kits you know who would buy them kind of thing it was that kind of the arguments which seems so, so bizarre now, or at least seems so obvious um, now. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't so obvious at the time, and it took people like like those at Admiral to basically push the envelope to kind of say, um, no, no, there is something here. You know, this isn't just a gimmick. This isn't just a one-off thing, um, and this isn't just a kind of quick cash grab. This is actually a significant opportunity for clubs and, and nations to to go and reach people through through kits so yeah it's, it's really i think um so much has changed in such a short space of time and it you can see it almost evolving now of course with the way kits are marketed and the kind of the approach to it again some of that's good and bad um but yeah there's definitely been a lot of changes and i think a lot of people don't realize how how much of a kind of modern thing it actually is relatively speaking so let's talk about how kits like this great West Germany team and other luminaries like Bayern Munich and Marseille, how a small club in the corner of Ireland, Cork City, came to wear the same kit designs. Suddenly you bring this element, this zigzag graphic in black, red and gold and you bang it on the shirt. You feel that it's new, that it's visionary. You can go anywhere in the country 
and you'll see the Cork City jersey. There's more stories about Cork soccer than any other place in the world, I'd say. And the tiny plucky part-timer from Ireland won up against the mighty Bayern Munich. As you said, the, the drummers were extremely well. Yeah. <laughs> really brilliant for Cork. The 90 minutes, there's kind of everything in human life. There's joy, despair, you name it. It's just everything bottled into 90 minutes. It's a badge of honour for where you're from. It's the greatest city in the world. Tell us about learning about this club, Phil, and this story. How did it come about? Yeah, so I I think I would have been vaguely familiar with, with some of the Cork City kits, but it wasn't really until I... As I was thinking about what to write for, I'd re- I'd read at the time an article uh, in Glory magazine, so another, another magazine about Cork City, um, and it was their game against uh, Bayern Munich, and I think that in- instantly made me think, okay, what kits were they wearing? And and it kind of spiraled from there when I realised and I looked back at their history of kits. I was thinking, wow, they've got basically like every good Adidas design from that time. I think bar um, bar maybe one or two, but pretty much everything that they'd, they'd worn, I thought that was fascinating. As you say, how comes they, uh, with a team, if you like, to get all these these great designs? And it was really kind of fun to look at and um, reading more about about the, I guess, the kind of technicalities of how that happened. It was interesting that they basically uh, were working with a company called Three Stripe International, and they basically were able to produce shirts, uh, Adidas shirts, uh, with a kind of license from Adidas. So, um, yeah, they had kind of basically free reign over what Adidas were doing at the time. And what's really wonderful is that they really kind of went for it. They really grabbed those great designs, put their stamp on it. And I think it definitely makes kind of sense that they were, as you, as you say, quite a new club at the time. And yeah, you could see kind of the club using the kits as a big part of their of their identity, really, and a big part of what they were trying to do. And they, I mean, it was, it was a perfect kind of match for them being with Adidas, because Adidas was, as we've talked about, so good at the time. Uh, you know, they Adidas were really kind of pushing the kind of geometry of shirts and using those three stripes. And it just, it just worked so well, I think, you know, given... As I say, given the club's colours, I think they were they were decent as well to have the white base with the green and red. And I mean, just on top of all that, they then also had some fantastic seasons and so you know runs in Europe. It's just sort of it's so talk about romance. It's that romantic thing, isn't it, of of a team, a relatively small team, uh, not only playing these big teams, but then they're wearing these kits that were as good if not better than them as well. It's such a wonderful combination. Yeah, your article charts the history. There had been other football teams in Cork throughout the 20th century, but Cork City was formed in the mid-80s and your article charts their early history, kind of the first decade where they just avoided relegation. And then you talk about in 88, they reached their first FAI Cup final against Derry City. And your line is, like a squire handing his knight his sword before battle, Three Stripe International stepped up and produced a brand new kit, especially for the showpiece game. But this kit was the same as we'd seen West Germany wear that summer. Yeah, and it's amazing because that design wasn't used for many other teams. I mean, you'd think, given how popular it was, um, and even like the Holland shirt, for example, that was actually used for a number of different teams in different colours. Uh, the West Union was used, but not not often really, not certainly not as much as you would expect. So yeah, that kit now, 
uh, and the sort of subsequent kits in that style are you know incredibly sought after uh, really hard to find and they are definitely again such an interesting combination and why has Cork City got uh, Germany's kit um, to be honest they don't need a reason it just looks great <laughs> it really does your article for those really interested in the intricacies of kit design is also brilliant and and again when you talk about Cork City you talk about those chevrons or the zigzags compared to the West Germany kit they would move it to accommodate the sponsor or their each season they might tweak the colour. And then we spoke about how results also make that shirt iconic. You mentioned Bayern Munich and a result Cork City had. This is a very famous result in League of Ireland circles. They played Bayern Munich in the UEFA Cup at Musgrave Park and went 1-0 up in front of 4,500. And the scorer is a very famous Irish sports person called Dave Barry who played for Cork Gaelic football team, obviously played soccer, as we call it in Ireland, or football, as we're purists <laughs> on this show. <laughs> football for Cork. And your your article says, the legend has it, he did a plumbing job that morning <laughs> they faced Bayern Munich. Yeah, and, and that's, again, when I, when I found that, when I read that, it's just, it is just like the stuff of, of a, a film, isn't it? Like, just absolutely amazing. Like, and just... You know, when you looked as well at the team that Bayern Munich had, it was a full-strength team, I believe. Or well, certainly a lot of the, the big players at the time, a lot of the international players were there. So it wasn't like they were, they kind of let them have it. It was, yeah, just amazing to read. So absolutely unbelievable tale. Even for someone like me who, I didn't really know that story. and But then when I read it, um, it just, yeah, it was so exciting just to read about what was happening. Is there a particular kit that has like eluded you that you'd particularly want in your cupboard but you haven't been able to find? Oh yeah, I mean, so there's definitely kind of various kits which I sort of know I'd like to get. So one of them, which I often mention, is the IX eighty nine. I think it is uh, a way shirt, and I'm sure everyone would have seen it. It's a kind of blue base with these sort of red and white and blue um, kind of chevrons or diamonds, and it's a very kind of busy shirt. Uh, but it's it's kind of one of the most famous Ajax away shirts, and that's certainly been a long term goal. And I've never I've seen it once or twice, but never for kind of a price I'd I'd go for. But um, and kind of I'd love to own a Holland eighty eight shirt, but I think I've probably missed the boat on that one. <laughs> I think um, you know again I'd have to have to seriously uh, uh, put aside some money. But yeah, I think I'm not particularly picky. I don't have a specific list. I know some people are kind of completionists. They sort of say oh, I want every Every Bayern Munich shirt since '88, I want to own that, and, and they go after that. I'm I'm more of a kind of keep keep a, a, a wide open view to to what's around, to what what's available. Having said that, I'd love to. I, I really like '90s shirts, and I really like uh, '90s Nike shirts. So I think you know, again, long term, I'd love to own kind of every kind of Borussia Dortmund kit from the '90s. Something like that would be nice to have. There, there's so many shirts. I often say to people, there's there's too many shirts uh, out there. You can never buy them all. Um, and it's kind of, <laughs> it's quite free and almost to sort of say, okay, I can't get everything, but I can get a little slice of the pie. And that that's good. <laughs> because of your, um, the work that you do and, and the people that you interact with, you've you've clearly got a really relaxed, laid back attitude about the, the this. You're not doing it because, as you say, you're not uh, trying to collect every single Liverpool shirt ever. But do you find that some of the people you interact with are sort of, 
part of this against modern football movement. So they're they're harking back to a time when things were simpler and it wasn't all about the money and it was about the style of football. And do you, do you like interact with these with these sort of people? Yeah, that's a really good question actually because I I think there's there's definitely um, I don't want to say a split, but I think there is a big group of people that are definitely in that camp, like you say, who are completely against uh, anything to do with modern football and shirts included. You know, modern shirts, and I think. I would I would sort of say most people would associate it, almost anything from from the noughties onwards, or certainly there's less of a, a love for those kits. Um, but then you also have a, a large subsection of people who are kind of enjoying kits and modern kits and, and where the industry is going. So I think there is actually quite a big, as I say, split. If I can use that word, maybe not as harsh as split, but certainly a, a difference of opinion. So I think I've often found myself kind of almost trying to champion kind of modern kits and sort of say actually yes old kits are great but um there is a lot to be excited about now and i think there's very real reasons for i think a lot of people's apathy to modern kits and um, i think we talked about before looking at some of the modern tournaments i've i've used euro 2016 as an example as the kind of a real low point actually um you know brands like nike and adidas uh, were literally rolling out um, the same, the same design with different colours, but I mean, even then, you would have um, a lot of similarity across the templates. But we are seeing, uh, I think, the growth from that now, which is really good. And brands have realised, okay, um, maybe we still can use templates, but let's not use them as kind of ubiquitously as we were. Let's actually try and um, introduce more bespoke elements. And Nike made a big statement uh, last year where they basically said, "We're going to ditch the templates." I mean, the funny thing is they, they are still using kind of, you know, in effect, elements of templates still across their designs, but it's a lot better. They are still, you know, trying to not do what they were doing uh, so much in the noughties and the tens. But um, yeah, I think there's a big group of people, like you're saying, who who basically just hark after those those old kits and don't want anything to do with new kits. And I'm often say, trying to say to people, uh, yeah, I completely understand. Like, I won't pretend that, you know, the 90s weren't amazing, but um, there is still beauty to be found in modern kits. Uh, maybe you have to look look in, uh, look in a bit harder, but it is still there. Well, everything looks, everything looks nicer in retrospect, doesn't it? It does, it does. Is there a kind of a hierarchy or, I don't want to say snobbery, but if I'm an Arsenal fan. I wouldn't buy a replica kit every single season. If I liked... A particular kit if I thought it was stylish I might uh, fork out I would tend to maybe go for training gear sometimes because I don't particularly want to be a walking advertisement for the sponsor I will pick a kit that I like is there a kind of a snobbery between someone who will just fork out for a club every season or the connoisseur yeah again it's really funny I, I can think of almost you've got your different personas you've got the person who is there and they are they are, you know, sniping really good deals on eBay. They'll never pay more than, you know, a pound over what they think a shirt is worth. And they're really kind of good at, um, yeah, no, they, they, the idea of buying a kit new to them would just be, you know, laughable. And then you do have a lot of people uh, and, and probably more people in, in the camp who, yeah, they'll, they'll pick up their favourite team's kit maybe once every few years. You know, if, if, if their country is playing in the World Cup, they'll buy the kit. Um, but there's a much more casual relationship with shirts and in many ways the shirts aren't what they're buying it for they're buying it to support the team or you know because they they love the team 
um, yeah, so I think there is definitely some snobbery. Yeah, you know, I do see some people who, who says, oh, you know, um, they're sort of starting their shirt collection. And you do see people, whether whether they say it openly or not, but they, they will kind of look and say, oh, you call that a shirt collection? You know, you've got... <laughs> that that costs you £10, for, you know, from a, from a, a discount site. Um, but actually, I mean, and again, I, I try to tell people and encourage people, just because you have one shirt or, you know, two shirts... It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You can still appreciate them. You can still enjoy them. Your opinion on shirts is as valid in many ways as other people. You know, you know. Some, I mean, I write about shirts, but there is a lot of subjectivity to it. You know, I, I, I like to think there's objective things that are good, make a shirt good. But actually, a lot of it is down to taste. There's a certain type of football fan that's constantly determined to present themselves as the biggest, most loyal supporter of a club. Like they're constantly posturing. Uh, like be that by going to away games or following the youth size yes, or knowing yeah. like loads of obscure knowledge That's and it. I think to That's some it. extent having a retro shirt kind of fits in with that it's yes. like it's the uniform of the purist isn't yes, it? So yeah, even if yeah. they don't really care about the football like even if they don't particularly like the shirt yep. like if you saw um, a Spurs fan in a stadium wearing the new shirt yep. and then you saw a guy next to him wearing a replica shirt of, a, of one in like 1964 <laughs> you'd always go oh that that guy's a real Spurs supporter he, he really knows the team and I, I think there's there's sort of like a, an ego boost to that as well maybe sometimes well that is a really yeah it's really funny because there was a real um, boom in kind of reissues of these retro shirts because I think exactly for those reasons you're saying, when fans were going to games, they wanted to be in those older older kits. And if you're, let's say you're a Manchester City fan, you know you don't want to be a bandwagon fan. You don't want to be someone who just joined after the takeover, do you? You want to be someone who was there when they were in the, the lower division. So having those old shirts, as you say, it's that kind of badge of honour or badge of kind of authenticity. There's a kind of, you know, I, I'm, I'm not just a Fairweather fan. I'm not just a bandwagon fan. I'm interested to hear, Phil, your opinion on Sam Pauli creating their own shirt. Yeah, I think um, really interesting story. One of the most kind of notable yeah, kit manufacturer related stories, uh, certainly of the past year. And it definitely caught my attention. And St. Pauli as well as a club, of course, are so distinctive in what they do. And, you know, very much, um, put, if I can't really think of a club actually that has as strong uh, an identity in terms of their ethos and their... You know, just who what they stand for as a club and you've seen that in everything they do and the kits of course are part of that they've always tried to tell a story tell some sort of message through the kits so I think them bringing it in-house makes a ton of sense it makes a lot of sense they can have that full control over over what they can create and I think um, if I remember correctly one of the things they said in, in the press release about bringing it in-house uh, was yeah but basically they looked and they tried to find uh, manufacturers that would meet their what they wanted to achieve in terms of sustainability and things like that. And basically they couldn't find it. So they thought, okay, we're not going to compromise on that. And it's just very same pally, isn't it? They, they said, actually, we would rather do it ourselves um, than compromise on what we stand for, which I think is, is admirable. So yeah, I'm really interested. I would say that their first kit is a safe start to the, to that kind of um, that venture, I would say. Uh, there was nothing particularly that grabbed me design-wise, but I'm very, very keen to look at how they get on with that. And I think going forwards, uh, it's a model which a lot of uh, clubs will be looking at because, of course, uh, especially when you're dealing with a lot of the bigger brands, often there's very limited scope in what you can do. Um, and yet there's always a trade-off where the bigger manufacturers 
also often are able just to provide more in terms of access to different markets and um, they can you know help fulfill big orders and things like that uh, but from a from a design perspective uh, often the smaller brands or even doing things in-house opens up opportunities which the bigger brands don't have so yeah it's, it's really interesting and it'll be very important to see how they do i think for the industry well, no, I was just going to say, I think St. Pauli is like, they're the ultimate hipster club, aren't they? So this is this is a hundred percent the kind of move they should be doing. Like they've already got, uh, like the, sometimes the the fans design the kit. I remember a few seasons ago they designed a kit that was uh, reversible. And I think this is like the the, the ultimate move for that. Like the yep. the next thing they'd be doing is getting the players to get the kit tattooed on them and have no kit at all. Well, you know, you say that actually. So another ultimate hipster club, Red Star FC. Uh, from Paris, they actually did that. They well, they released a, a tattoo of the crest wow. when it was their their third kit. I think. That's amazing. So yeah, they, they beat them to the punch there. <laughs> Phil, tell us uh, quickly what we might find on your YouTube channel, and also the Football yeah. Shirt Collective is a massive community, mm. particular on Twitter. It's, yeah. it's a brilliant account to follow because yes. it is a community. People are talking about the shirts they own, what mm. they like about them. So tell us more about those two accounts yeah so if i start with football Shirt collective as a site it's been going for quite a while now it basically started as a guy in london uh, and his mates basically started yeah writing articles about about football shirts long before it was a, a big thing and, and even selling them on the marketplace um, and i'd been doing some work for them and really i'm glad you brought the word community because that is the goal really of, of football Shirt collective is to kind of uh, have that space uh, not just for people who are kind of broadly interested in shirts but the kind of fanatics the enthusiasts you know the ones who do actually notice sponsor changes in a year or manufacture switches and that sort of thing and it's been great because it's very much been a thing that's grown a lot in the past year and even things like what what we've been doing recently is kind of looking at some of the kind of nice modern kits that are out there and actually selling them a really competitive price for collectors who might not be able to get them as cheaply otherwise and things like that so yeah follow do follow football shirt collective on on social media and uh, as i say there's regular articles and just just stuff really to indulge in in that hobby which is really cool and i guess yeah the youtube my youtube uh, phil's corner is very much the same in many ways it started as a bit of a passion project i kind of thought let's just have this space just to talk about some of the stories about kits and I think a lot of my most kind of popular content has been around collecting and things like how do you start a football shirt collection? What are some of the things to look out for and things like that? So, um, yeah, there's, there's just, I mean, it's if you're into football shirts, there's there's never been a better time. I think there's never been a, a better time to, to indulge in that hobby and learn from other people. And what I love is that I'm always seeing a shirt um, and, you know, being envious of it or thinking I've never seen that before. And it's kind of like every day is a school day, isn't it? Like they say, it's a bit like that at the moment, really, um, which is really fun. So, yeah, there's all that. And, um, yeah, do chat to me on there. I'm always happy to talk about kits on there. Since we started the website and magazine, we've been hugely into kit design. And I think what comes across both talking to you and through the article is... There's so much around this. You can appreciate the design of a shirt, but if you pull that shirt out of your collection, your wardrobe, there's a story behind it. There's a yeah. story behind the team. As we saw with Cork City, perhaps there's a particular goal involved. Yeah. So it's it's more than just a piece of fabric. Mm. It's memories, isn't mm. it? Yeah, and I think I, I say to people often that shirts, um, they have so much sticking power because, you know, players can come and go. They can transfer 
with the shirts is that one thread, <laughs> quite literally, that you can trace through a club's history. And, and you know, if you take Cork City as, as that example, um, you know, if you lined up all those kits, um, you know, back, uh, kind of side by side from when they started, and you just, you know, showed that to a fan, all those memories would come flooding back, those moments, those players. And that's that's just such a wonderful thing and such a visual thing, which which you don't necessarily get in, in other areas of the club, of, of any club. So yeah, I think for some clubs in particular, so Court City would be one that have particularly, or have had particularly strong periods of of kits. Those stories will, will continue and probably resonate a lot more loudly than, than other uh, eras or, or teams would uh, because they had such strong kits. Very last question, Phil. How many shirts do you own? Although <laughs> I really need to count. Honestly, people people ask me this all the time. And you know, when I started collecting, I did actually. I had a spreadsheet. I was really diligent, and very quickly I kind of uh, wasn't as disciplined. So I, I think it's not actually. I don't think it's more than one hundred and fifty. I, I don't think it's nearly as big as some. But yeah, something like that. It's been a pleasure chatting to you, Phil. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Joe, thanks again. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks for inviting me. It was a brilliant episode, I think. And that's it for the latest episode of the Pokemon Gold podcast. Find us on social media at Pokemon Gold and listen out for future editions with more guests who contributed writing, art, photography and more to both the magazine and website. And join us next time on the Pokemon Gold podcast.